This is episode number 203 of the Rising Man podcast with Jeff Agustinelli, making sense of the world through movement. Welcome back, Rising Man fam. Thank you for joining me here today. Jetty Azuma checking in behind the mic for another episode of the Rising Man podcast. Before we jump into our episode for today, I want to remind all of you guys of our latest, most exciting offering we have coming up here in 2022. Dojo is a four-day self-mastery and embodied leadership training that is happening April 7th to 10th here in Northern California. If you want more information, go to risingman.org slash dojo. And if you want to know more about what it means to become an embodied leader, to master yourself and your patience and your poise, well, just stay tuned for today's episode because my guest and I went deeply into that here today. So risingman.org slash dojo, go check it out for more info and get registered today. All right. My guest for today is Jeff Agustinelli. Jeff is an ultra athlete and performance coach who helps men apply the ultra marathon mindset to every area of their lives. He helps them to hone their focus, power, and productivity to become ultra in every area of their lives from business to relationships to parenting and sport. In this episode, Jeff and I dove into the race of life. As an ultra marathoner and endurance athlete, Jeff shared some powerful metaphors and lessons for life that he's learned from putting thousands of miles behind him on the road. He spoke about the importance of focus and how training our attention takes our performance in anything to the next level. Jeff spoke about how he makes sense of the world through movement, how we can tap into another pool of information from within our bodies. And lastly, we explored painful experiences. What is happening when we experience pain and what happens when we ride it out and listen instead of avoiding it. This and so much more, without further ado, Jeff Agustinelli. All right, Rising Man fam, I've got a wonderful man joining me here today, Jeff Agustinelli, coming in live from ATX, Austin, Texas. How are you feeling today, bro? I'm fantastic, Jetty. Great to be here, my man. Yeah, man. Uh, glad that we got to connect. I actually got to speak to your beloved this morning for a little while too. I heard. Yes. So I got the I got the the double dynamic duo package today. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, dude. Um, so yeah, man, here we go. Let's jump right in. I know uh, everyone will hear your introduction in the right before they hear the recording here. Mm -hmm. So everyone will know that you're an ultra athlete and you identify yourself as such. How long have you been been doing ultra athletics and endurance types of sports? Yeah. So it's, it's funny. I start, my first 50 K was in November, I believe of 2019. Um, it kind of came out of the ashes, if you will, of, of recently divorced. Um, and you know, having my daughter half the time instead of her being in my house full time and really being desiring like a goal that mm -hmm. I needed to get to. And I was, contemplating. I really wanted to pick a sport. I've always been an athlete. I was a D1 lacrosse player in college and, you know, I was still super fit and just doing a lot of exercise, but I really wanted to like get specific on a sport. Uh, and I just decided I had had, a, um, an ultra runner on my podcast when I was running it, Charlie Engel, he ran across the Sahara desert. He's had amazing accomplishments, 111 days, 50 miles a day across the Sahara desert with two other guys in a crew. 111 days. Oh yeah. Holy running the Sahara. It's a documentary. You should check it out. Crazy. And, uh, I was, I was sitting in my place at the time and I was in that contemplation of, I need to pick a sport because I wanted to get very focused. And I thought, well, you know, I ran a half marathon. I thought I should run a marathon. And I was like, nah, it's too vanilla. Like it's too like, you know, housewifey kind of, you know, bougie kind of thing. <laughs> and I thought of Charlie and I go, shit, I got to run an ultra marathon. And so I looked at the calendar. I was like, I'll do a 50 K. 
you know, I'll train for four months and I'll just run it. So I did it and loved it. And then I was going to run another race the next year, but then I got reactivated an injury. So then it was really the perfect entrance into ultra running. Cause I had to run a 50 K and then take off a year and then set my sights on a race the next year. So I had to have the patience to wait out. And then I ran hundred K, um, in October this past year. So how many miles is hundred K 62, 62 miles. Okay. So mm-hmm. I'm just thinking in my car, when I'm driving on the highway, my GPS <laughs> says 62 miles to the next exit. It feels like a long way to go in the car. It's a long way. What's that that first time that you run 62 miles? <laughs> what is what was that like? I mean, it's pretty running for me is a meditation, right? So I don't I typically don't listen to anything maybe once every 5 months. I'll bring a phone with headphones. Mm-hmm. Um very rarely do I ever listen to anything. And the race itself looked like me up front with three or four other dudes cracking jokes for the first 18 miles. Mm-hmm. And then one guy fell behind and I was in first until like mile 36. And then he caught up. So he kept, he got first, I got second. I was 11 hours and 18 minutes, but it basically just looks like a moving meditation for me. It's very of the elements, right? Mm-hmm. You know, feeling my feet on the ground, like moving. It, of course, at some point it gets very challenging. Like for me, it was around just shy of 40 miles. So I had 22 miles left and I was not super chipper. I was just kind of like, Oh, this is tough. Mm. And then it subsides. I think for me, it's just very parallel or mimics life. When it gets hard, you just got to go through it. Like there's no other way about it. You just keep moving and you get through it and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was just thinking. I was thinking of all the times that I've heard, or I've even equated my own life to a race, right? Mm-hmm. And what a beautiful metaphor, right? The the yep. ultra marathon. It's kind of like if we're fortunate enough, life is an ultra marathon, right? Hopefully, absolutely. It's a, hopefully, it's not a hundred meter sprint. Um, <laughs> so when you're when you're thinking about how this has, I'm wondering how you think this has helped you in in life and just navigating those inevitable challenges and thinking about everybody out there. We're all we're all running our race at our pace mm-hmm. and the way that we do it. Um, some of your biggest insights about life. I'm sure you've had a, a bunch putting all those hours in on the road. Absolutely, dude. Um, focus has really been the main distinction. Um, I think like all things, when we're naturally good at something, we tend to practice it less, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm naturally good at organization and focus and those kinds of things. And so I don't do the practices that I, at least prior to getting into ultra marathons, like I didn't, really do the things I knew I needed to do to have a very like dialed schedule and routine and all that stuff because I could be lazy about it and still be really good at it because it came to me naturally. Mm -hmm. So when I started doing ultras, I had to become very diligent with my time because for instance, if I have a 30 mile training run, it's like six hours. And to do six hours I typically do my long runs on Fridays to do a 60, uh, excuse me, a six hour run on a Friday. I have to have all of my affairs in order. I have to have clients scheduled. I have to have all the things like I have to have my schedules got to be dialed period. So it was a force function for me, but also my desire at the time, right? Like I feel like consciousness is holographic, right? Like the, the smallest part resembles the whole. Okay. And for me, I had this desire and this need to get, to become more of an expert at something, right? Instead of having more range, having more depth. And inevitably what happened was that in order to become 
a good and on the verge of great ultra runner, I had to say no to things and yes to other things. Mm-hmm. I can't engage in every activity under the sun and go out. And cause I like, if I'm going to do something for fun, like I'll go do a workout with someone, like I'll go for a run, like I'll go do some weights. I'll go to boxing. I'll do whatever. Cause that's, I like to move my body. I make sense of the world through movement. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, well, no, I'm going to do one thing or two things. And I inevitably had to get focused on the one activity and complementary activities. Mm-hmm. So what it really forced me to do was get better at the thing I was already good at and focus on what's important and let the rest fall by the wayside. Yeah, I, I could really see that. That's that's another thing I was imagining because you don't just pick up and run 100K one no. day, right? <laughs> so these training runs, like you said, these six and six hour training runs, that that's a, that's a big commitment, man. Mm-hmm. I even started thinking about <laughs> like, it, what, you get 10 miles into your training run and you're like, oh shit, I forgot something at home. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like, there's no turning back. Um, yep. So, so yeah, I can understand just needing to be really organized and how that might impact your life. I know for, for myself, um, anything that I want to get done as an adult and, and every level I want to perform higher requires, like you said, more focus, more attention, mm-hmm. refinement. Um, yep. I imagine that same is true for your, for your running form, right? Becoming more efficient when you're putting that many miles on your legs, mm-hmm. having a really efficient form. So there's so many cool things. And you said making sense of the world through movement. I wrote that down because that's something that really speaks to me. Mm-hmm. I've been an athlete my whole life. I've been a martial artist uh, in my adult life has been my big focus. And I know exactly what you mean when you say that making sense of the world through movement, but I want to hear you go a little bit deeper into what you've learned about that. Yeah, absolutely. So most of us, I think I can safely speak for most individuals hearing this right now is that we live in our heads. We think a lot. We're scrolling on our phones a lot. We're, we're th- trying to think our way through life. And what happens is I don't think that we we're meant to focus for more than four or five hours a day, period. Right? Like on a, on, a, on a great day, I'm getting five hours of very focused work done. And then I have a lot of time left. And when it comes to making sense of the world, make, I make sense of the world through movement, meaning that the way I am in my body, even when we look at just kind of rewind, when we look at the coaching space, right, there's this kind of huge focus on somatics and trauma and, and, and body-based practices. Mm-hmm. They're still head-based. Most of them are still head-based. Right. Most of them are still mental masturbation. And I'm sure you can sense right now the, the like frustration that's coming through is like, most people don't spend time in their body. They spend time in their mind and they think they're spending time in their body. There's no better way to have the, the instant feedback than to go hit a trail for 10 miles. Cause if you get distracted, you're going to fall on your fucking face. Mm. Can I swear on this show? Are you guys? Yeah, is, yeah, man. Okay. I wasn't sure. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you're going to fall on It's instant feedback, right? It's like, if you, there's a million times where I've had the thought like, well, this and something comes in my mind and I'll hit a toe on a rock and I'll kind of stumble about like, ah, <laughs> I see you. Right. And it's like strike back in. But as far as making sense of the world through movement, for me, there's a direct correlation between how much I move and how I feel. If I don't move, I don't feel good. If I move a lot, I feel great. Mm. So it helps me put things in perspective. That's what I mean by making sense of the world, right? If I can, if I'm worried about something, if I go out for a run, typically I get done, I'm like, what the fuck was I thinking? Like, why was I, I forget what I was worried about. And it becomes more of a conversation of what's actually true. Like, what are the facts? 
in this conversation? What's actually happening? And what can I do instead of, well, she's being this way and he said that, no, 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 what the fuck? It's more of like, just do this. Oh, cool. Done. Mm -hmm. And it becomes more of a, an automatic response instead of a reaction where it's like, oh, cool. Obviously this is the next step done. It locks perspective in for me as to how to move forward instead of, well, if I do this and then that, and it gets rid of all of the back and forth period. Yeah, I I really agree with what you're saying there and the way that it occurs for me, especially in my martial arts practice, that I, I found that you can learn a lot about somebody by the way that they move their body. And it's particularly when you put somebody under duress, like even whether it's martial art, that's I think combat sports is a little bit more obvious. Yeah. Like if someone's coming <laughs> at you and you get to yep. see, okay, well, how do you respond? Right. You're learning a lot mm-hmm. about the sympathetic nervous system. What happens yep. when you're engaged in that way? How how well can you keep your poise and your patience and your body? But even in one-on-one basketball. Right. Where it's, you know, the physical stakes aren't quite as high, but there's emotional stakes and there's the the meaning that, that mm-hmm. we derive and, and how someone moves their body when there's there's a score involved and there's com- there's a competition. Yeah. So I agree with you. I think there's far too many people who don't spend enough time in their bodies. And there is that illusion of, oh, well, we're we're talking about sabbatics. Um, I'm listening to a podcast about trauma work that's still just feeding me between the ears. It's mm-hmm. not actually living it out and living it through the body. So that's a real, I'm glad that you said that because there's, I hear a lot of people talking about it. And as I'm, I was actually thinking, I was like, well, you know what? That's true. There's a lot of people who they'll go on their social media or they'll do a podcast episode or even write a freaking book about it. But ultimately mm-hmm. it's how are you moving things energetically through space and time? hundred percent. And are you bringing some awareness and some intention to that? Mm-hmm. Or is it just still happening? without yep. you knowing. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, so let's actually take that a little bit deeper, man. What, what, have, what have you learned about moving your own process through um, in whether it's with your running or with these other movement practices that you shared about your own journeys with different traumas or different challenges from the past? What are, what are some of the big insights you've had there? Yeah, I think the biggest insight is, is just how to be with something, right? Typically what happens is we feel pain and we want it to go away. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can't tell you before I, before I was doing what I'm doing now, I was a live in private chef for seven years. So I worked with people and, and cooked their meals. Typically it started off with stage three and stage four cancer patients and, and more of a natural healing path. Right. Mm-hmm. And most people who experience pain want to alleviate the pain at all costs. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But pain is a message. Typically, that message is you're doing something wrong, change. Mm-hmm. It's a, at its fundamental, basic thing. And for me, what, especially just one plane of movement, right? Like running is across one plane. That's it. You're not, it's not side to side. It's not typically up and down. It's forward and backward. That is it. Mm-hmm. Typically just forward. So moving in one plane, the, um, the likelihood of an injury from repeat or overuse is pretty high. So for me, it's like, if I'm experiencing pain in my hip, oh, what being with that pain and riding it out and letting it move without making a story up about it, right? And remember too, I'm not listening to anything while I'm on a run. So I'm not distracting myself. I'm sitting with it. Typically what happens if I don't make up a story about it, which is 99% of the time, I'll be with it long enough for it to just move somewhere else, right? There's a joke in the ultra running community. It's like, 
you know, if you've got a pain in your hip, wait 20 minutes, it'll be somewhere else. Right. It's just like the pain will move. The problem isn't that we don't let the pain move. The problem is that we attach meaning to it. Right. Oh, well, if this, oh, well, what happens if this, and I'm like, well, then I can't do this. And well, then I can't do that. And there's all of these stories that we start to conjure up. And for me, like being with whatever is happening in my body long enough to let it move has been a practice that has kind of burst out of ultra running. Right. Like if so in life, if something comes up, I can sit with it longer. I can get perspective on it without having to process the shit out of it or fucking do any of these things that just make it worse in my opinion. Right. There's, there's a lot of things in the world today where it's like, especially in our space when it comes to coaching or trauma or somatics, any of that stuff where it's like, I'm 40. I was going to say Velveeta, right? Like it's kind of like Velveeta, like overprocessed cheese. I don't know if you know what Velveeta yeah, is, but like, yeah. it's kind of like we Velveeta the shit out of it. Right. It's, it becomes this overprocessed thing. And it's like, we don't even know what it is at the end. Right. Is it cheese? Is it plastic? Is it fucking mucus? Who the hell knows? It's just this thing that we've tried to make sense of that we've over over processed. And I think the science says something to the effect of emotions only last 90 seconds. Hmm. That's if we let them move. Yeah. But when we don't, <laughs> they tend to stick around, right? Because then they have, there's the primary and then there's the secondary, then there's the tertiary. And then there's all these emotions stacked on top of each other because we're having an emotion about the emotion. So for me, it's been this conversation of, cool, I'm going to sit with this and ride it out. And as of recently, I've been working with a, a buddy of mine who does a very amazing form of, I don't even know what to call it, but it's body-based and uh, I focus more these days on connecting up and down the chain. So if I have hip pain, I explore up and I explore down, right? So like what's going on in my quads, what's going on in like glutes in that region, if it's, you know, or I'll go up, like what's happening in like the obliques, what's happening in my stomach, what's happening here and explore different areas consciously to improve sensitivity and connectivity up and down the chain, right? So it's like smoothing out the chain instead of, uh, getting stuck on that one thing, right? So for me, it's a direct parallel to life. Mm -hmm. How many times have we gotten angry at something, experienced the emotion of anger and call 87 different people and tell them about how pissed we are and perpetuate the thing and then we're stuck on it. And then 87 people believe the same story that we believe. Now we've just reinforced it instead of just like exploring, oh, I'm angry because, oh, well, if this happens and what I believe is that it's gonna have this effect in my life. Or it's going to do this and it's going to do that. So it's not really about what this person said. It's because I think it's going to have this cause and effect. Right. And right? I, I think that's such a relatable example that you gave there. Mm -hmm. The the experience of these things that just tend to linger and stick around. I, I love that you brought some side. I've never actually heard that, that emotions only last 90 seconds. That's really, mm -hmm. that's really fascinating. And I, and I believe it too, because when you see people who have longstanding trauma, right? Trauma that goes back to their childhood, perhaps that there's always something when you look through and you trace it through time, there's a reestablishing of that trauma over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. In a lot of cases, there's uh, like a self-sabotage of, of looking for it, seeking it out, creating the, the experience that will reinforce that story. Like, ah, there we go again. When, when A plus B happens, I always feel like C and that's just the way life is. And going back to what you said about what, how you learned that from running, that, um, that that pain is just asking you to change something, right? It's 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 informational, but the temptation to try and run away from it 
to avoid it, to move around it because it hurts, it's uncomfortable versus listening to it and leaning into it. Mm-hmm. What a novel idea, right? And I, I love to reference the animal kingdom because there's so much wisdom in the natural world. In fact, I, I feel like humans are really the aliens on this planet. When you, mm-hmm. when you look at every other living animal that moves around on the planet, the the way that they experience things like pain is it's so it seems so different than the way that we do. I'm not, and obviously, pain is a sensation; it's a physical sensation. But there's when you when you watch an animal that's that's broken its leg or it's gotten injured, the way that it responds, you know, it slows down, right? Mm-hmm. It just it, it it's you could tell that there's a higher level of presence instead of the temptation to try and escape. So. Just thoughts on, uh, even just on escapism. Now, I know you had, before we started recording, you shared about some of your history um, with substances in the past. Mm-hmm. I know I have my history with that as well. We could we could list out a whole bunch of strategies that we have nowadays to escape because that's something we're really good at as humans. What are, your, what are your thoughts on that dynamic when it comes to pain and navigating hardship? Yeah, it's such a great question, Jetty. But it, it's, I think there's, it's nuanced. I'll say it that way. Um, as you mentioned, like prior to like college and before college, so like since I was 15 to 21 ish was smoking a ton of weed, doing a lot of Coke, mushrooms, acid, you name it, micro dots, LSD, like everything that came out, anything I was just like, Oh, uh, uh, in a lot of it, alcohol, all the stuff, but still got great grades. Still was pre-med, still all that stuff. And then played D1 lacrosse. I don't know how the hell I did all that, but anyways, Long story short was there was this constant desire to have it be in an altered state, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the, the initial thing that happened was I did a 10-day Vipassana where I kind of got tricked into it, right? And um, How'd you the, get tricked into it? Because I've done I'm, one too. It's, it's okay. a brief story. I'll tell right, you. Go ahead. Yeah. So I was a live-in private chef at the time. And my girlfriend at the time was cooking with me at this one particular job in, in uh, Newton, Massachusetts, right outside of Boston. And we were in the kitchen and they had this really cool oven. It's called an aga. And it has all these different chambers, right? That are all different temperatures. So instead of like having one oven, that's one temperature, you've got one that's like 250, one that's a warming oven, one that's like 450 and then like a broiler. And it's really cool. So I'm like, I'm on the stovetop. I'm like cooking up here. I'm in each chamber, like switching stuff out. And then I'm like chopping and then I'm coming back. And in the middle of all of this, and I'm sure you can see it like in a frenzy in the kitchen, she goes, Hey babe, do you want to go do a 10 day silent meditation retreat with me? I'm like, yes, let's do it. Keep going. (laughs) Right. Day comes, we get to the retreat center and I have this weird feeling in my stomach. I'm like, Hmm. Okay. We get to the main lodge and there's women on one side, men on the other side. And the person that's talking up front is like, so for the next 10 days, and and it's more eloquent than this, but they basically said no talking, no looking at people, no writing, no reading, no journals, no music, no nothing, no masturbating. Like don't, you can't bring anything in here. And I'm sitting here. I'm like, her name was Siobhan. I'm like, Oh, across the way. I'm like, Chevy, like, what the fuck did you just get me into? Like (laughs) giving her that stare and like get vibe. Um, but it was the best experience ever. Uh, and in there, I learned how to, and the same thing, how to sit with it and not distract myself. Right. So that was how I got tricked into Vipassana. But the, the, the escapism conversation, I think what happens is for me, at least was I had that experience of constantly seeking an altered state, i.e. escape. Mm-hmm. And then for five years and then another five years after that, with a little interruption in the middle of having zero substances, didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't do anything. 
And then a couple of years ago, gave myself permission to come into right relationship with these things. So I'm 100% Italian. I enjoy red wine and started having some wine again. And then, you know, my buddy was uh, doing like different types of uh, psychedelic experiences and he was doing mushrooms and whatever else. So I was like, eh, just trying different things, but with a different intention. Mm. So it was for me, it became a choice to engage in that activity and not a need. So for me, the conversation of escape is a habitual thing of, I need this thing. And if anyone that's been an addict knows the addict tendency of, I need a drink, I'm going to drop everything I'm doing. I'm going to go to the store. I'm going to get wine or I need to smoke. I'm going to find someone who's got weed. And you're on the phone for fucking four hours until you find it. Mm -hmm. There's no diverting that activity. That's escape. Mm -hmm. That's not a choice. Sure. You can say you're there that person's committed to finding thing, whatever it is, if it's a must and you need it and it deters you, potentially that's an escape. So the conversation for me these days is more of like, is this going to further like assist me in evolving? Cool. Can I take stents? Like right now for the new year, I was like, I'm not going to drink until further notice period. But I did find myself too, of like, I had a little bit of herb here and there. I was in California and you can just walk in the store and buy like a vape pen with fucking THC in it. I'm like, that's weird. So I have went and bought one. I'm like, oh, this is kind of fun. So anyways, long story short is the tendency to want to escape is very easy to notice. And if we have the right people in our lives, they'll tell us, why are you doing this? Right? If you don't show up. So decoding escape and decoding what's actually happening, I think is better done by someone else. A lot of times we can't see our own shit. And the best way that I have found to really look at what's in play is to stop all things and then to reintroduce things slowly. If that's the need, some people are very hell bent on like they're sober and that's their identity that has its own problems with it. Um, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I was there for almost 10 years with a little stint in between, but the, the, the way to tackle that, I personally believe in the way that I've, I've helped people do this is to like, just stop everything, add something in. If you need it the next day to function, then there's a problem. Yeah. And that piece you said just a few moments ago about having involving other people in that mm -hmm. process, because uh, especially with things like addiction, um, even yep. if we're not talking about substances, I mean, we could be talking about 100%. late night Netflix binging or yep. eating slamming junk food and ice cream, whatever it is, right? So, so fill in the blank with whatever mm -hmm. substance or vice escape that it is, having other people involved because it's so easy to believe our own bullshit story. Absolutely. Um, especially the addict mind, right? I mean, the, the things that I've told myself to justify addictive behaviors is just, it's crazy. It, it, yeah. it, literally, it's, it's, a, it's obsessive. It's like an obsessive thought process that anybody else could see it. It's easy to see it in other people, but mm -hmm. the whole function of that addictive mind is that we are fooling ourselves. We're selling ourselves a story to indulge in the behavior. So it's yep. tricky. And that's why it's so important to have the, I guess, accountability is the word that comes to mind or just mm -hmm. people who you know in your life that you can trust that are like, yo, what's going on? What are you doing yep. there for? Or in checking in with people too. Because mm -hmm. I've been there myself, man. I, and currently I find that there's, it, it's not useful for me to have, and, and periodically I've, 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 you know, said, okay, well, let me see what it feels like to have a glass of wine and realize, eh, could do with it, could do without it. Mm -hmm. um, but to, to have 
uh, people that I, that I know are, 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 I can check in with and that I can be honest with as well about what's really going on. Because yep. once you've built up that muscle of deceiving yourself and others in order to indulge a feeling and create a sensation, it's a really tricky thing to come back from it. Mm -hmm. yeah. I got a lot of compassion for people who are stuck in that. And I know a lot of people who- thousand percent. And we're, we're, we, we've all experienced that with, you know, whatever substance or escape pattern that that's been. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny though, too, Jetty, the, um, the guy I was talking about early, Charlie Engel, who ran across the Sahara. When I, when I interviewed him, we talked about addiction and the ultra marathon mindset. And he said at some point in the interview, he said, the addict is all the best parts of me. Hmm. And I was like, interesting. I was like, tell me more about that. And he said something to the effect of, well, the addict is what lets me be a great a great father or a great, you know, a great partner. Um, and it, it, he flipped the frame on it where he was, he's now addicted to running, right? He runs ultras like all the time. Some people would say, well, you're just trading one addiction for another. I don't necessarily believe that. Mm. Um, I think that those of us who have a high tendency, like who have addictive tendencies to things, we just have that and we get to channel it in the right place. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. I, well, I think that's, that's a really useful way to look at it is because, uh, yeah, I mean, everything comes with the, the blessing and the curse of it. And thousand percent, you can leverage that addictive tendency into something that's more productive and, and life building, life creating versus mm -hmm. uh, life sabotaging, then all the more power to you. And I think I, I find that, that you see that a lot. You see a lot of uh, people who are recovering from addiction uh, finding ways to do it uh, with physical expression. Uh, and yep. I, I don't want to beat a dead horse here. I'm not sure if there's anything else new to say about this, but I see that in a lot of people that um, one of the avenues to rid themselves of the chemical addiction specifically is by uh, participating in exercise and in, in a lot of cases, intense exercise. So mm -hmm. uh, what are, what are some of the other modalities that you've seen be really effective for people? I know, you, I know you have a lot of experience in the physical and the ultra marathon side of things, but what else have you experience either with people you work with or people that you've had um time that you've worked with as far as like overcoming addiction yeah yeah, yeah. like uh so aside from just the physical mo modality what, what else have you seen be really effective yeah i mean i think the addiction and anything that we're quote unquote ashamed of needs to live in the dark in order to live right like once it has a light shown on it it tends to at least that's the initial phase of like opening up to whatever, like to that thing being noticed and seen by other people. And I just want to preface this with like, I'm not an addiction expert, although I have assisted people in helping them to come into right relationship with things. Mm -hmm. um, just wanted to preface it with that. Sure. But a lot of it is just having them being a listening for someone and not enabling their story. Mm -hmm. I have found to be very, very good, right? Like I've, have not gone through AA or anything like that. So I don't have a context in like that type of setting. But what I have seen that doesn't work is that people will trust another individual and be like, well, this is like a secret and you can't tell anybody and like this. And it becomes more of a thing. Whereas when I've assisted people, it's like, cool. Have you told your partner? Have you come out to your family? Have you? No. Okay, cool. That's the first thing, right? It's like just being in conversation with somebody who one who's been there but two can help you to unravel like here's how you take the steps to do it 
And you may not need to move it physically, but like emotionally, you need to be seen in this because you don't want to be seen in it. Mm -hmm. Period. It's like, yeah, in a way, rip off the bandaid, but it's more of a, how do you start to just kind of like, you know, open it up a little bit, right? Like unfurl it, have it blossom. I like that. That brings me back to what you were saying before about the writing it out. Right, mm-hmm. being willing to to ride out the experience of, of yes. knowing that that it's not going to last forever, and, and having the faith. I think there's oftentimes we have the expectation of bad or negative outcomes that mm-hmm. drive our our behavior to try and avoid it or try to steer clear of that. Um, like you were just saying, that the fear of of sharing with with somebody close to us when we're having a hard time because we're worried about well, what would they think? What are they going to say? They're going to be upset. They're going to be mad at me whatever we anticipate that no. oftentimes doesn't really end up, end up being what happens. But we and it may though, like that may happen. Right. And I think that it's, it's the same thing of, you know, when, and if that does happen, they have someone to be like, Oh, like, how do you be with that emotion? Cause I think at the end of the day, it's like self-regulation is the one thing that if everybody could figure out and be practiced at understanding how to come into right relationship with their emotions. Mm-hmm. bar none that's one of the most useful skills to acquire period yeah yeah let's say more about that self-regulation what are, yeah. what, are what are some of your self-regulation practices aside from what we've already spoken about i mean it's a comprehensive thing right so it's like when there's the there's one just being aware of what emotions exist right so like expanding your emotional vocabulary like having more emotional literacy right like being able to understand what emotion is and why it happens. Most people think that emotion is something that happens to them, right? Like, oh, or they, I over-identify with, right? Like I am angry. I am so angry that someone did this. Okay. Like coming into the conversation of, I feel this thing. I feel anger. Mm-hmm. It's not who I am, something I'm experiencing, mm-hmm. right? So one is really just understanding how to expand your emotional vocabulary. There's tons of resources out for that, right? Like there's systems, right? Like there's NVC and there's other things of that nature to understand how to like communicate and how to understand emotion better. Not knock on NVC specifically, but most of the um, systems of language and, and, and emotion have their own inherent challenges. I think a lot of things when they become systematized a hundred percent, like they become their own own worst enemy sometimes. It's just another you, wall, right? It's that, another, it's just another it, like thing that has here. to be, well, it's a thing that has, like, if I don't do it that way, then I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like right and wrong is baked into it. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, it's not bad. I'm not saying it's bad. I did, after I did the private chef stuff, I, I, I worked with a company that I had gotten certified in, in, in life coaching and some other like consciousness technologies to help bring their stuff from offline to online. And that was another seven year stint but it was all around a system of language. And what happened, I noticed is that like people would kind of like robotically use this system of language, Mm -hmm. but like I have a very high BS meter and I could just feel, I'm like, but they want to say something different. Like, why wouldn't they just say it? And when they said what they really wanted to say, it's like, Oh, that's, what's really there. (laughs) Yeah. And it was freeing. So anyways, long story short, is that like understanding emotion, huge, right? Like having an emotional literacy and then emotional intelligence, right? Like understanding how to really navigate emotion, right? Mm-hmm. And nothing is, no matter what system or practice or tools that you use for this, 
nothing beats practice, right? Like using the thing is what gives you the experience, right? Like how does it work when it's in situ, right? Like when you experience anger, like how do you, if you react and explode and yell at someone, clearly that's something that needs to be looked at. No one's perfect. Of course, we all have our moments, but like, can you take it from overreacting 10, 15 times in a month to five? It's improvement, right? So it's like becoming better at it and having a, a better relationship with the experience of emotion is, is huge. And again, that happens by practice. Yeah. I love that word practice. You know, uh, mm -hmm. for me, it's that giving yourself the opportunity to acquire the experiential wisdom yep. that, you know, going back to what we were saying earlier on in the podcast, that it's, it's one of the, one of my challenges when I, you know, I've been doing the podcast for almost four years now. Mm -hmm. And every time I'm doing this, I'm like, this is great. You know, we're having great conversations and we're doing exactly what you said before, right? We're feeding ourselves between the ears and that's obviously valuable, but I know I've been there before myself that I've, I've overfed my mind without giving my body an opportunity to really experience and understand it. And without that yep. connection, it's, it's like, uh, it's like going to the gym and only working out your upper body. And then you become one of those guys who's got, you know, really Dude, skinny legs walking around. The meathead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. So just yeah. the, the balance of, like you said, the practice, the experiential wisdom, so, so important. And there's so mm -hmm. many ways to come by it right? For you, it's ultra marathons and, and some of the other things that you dabble in. Um, for me, it's, it's martial arts and being out in nature and climbing things. And it, it I think all, there's also the, the realm of putting yourself in positions where you can have these honest conversations with people and nurturing your own relationships. That's experiential wisdom, mm -hmm. having those, having those blow up arguments, having those hard conversations and checking in with your body, having that awareness of what's going on right now. Cause it's like, a, it's like, um, in, in college, I studied, I studied physical therapy. We used to call these practical examinations, right? Where they give mm -hmm. you a scenario and you're in it. It's like, okay, here's somebody with a torn ACL. What are you doing? What are you testing? What are you, um, putting ourselves in these practical life situations where we actually have to get information, see how we show up. How does this feel in my body? What's happening to my heart rate? Where am I? I didn't even realize that my shoulders are up around my ears. And, and not just avoiding those situations or trying to logic our way around it because we've listened to a thousand podcast episodes on, you know, NBC or one of these other, one of these other modalities. Right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I love that message. I'm always about like, let's get in the game, right? Put your reps yes. in. They don't have to all, be, they don't have to all be pretty. Just, I'm sure yeah. when you were out there and you're, I mean, cause you were, you were already an athlete, but mm -hmm. I'm sure your running technique is something that you're constantly working on refining. Every day. So, every day why i can't not you don't you don't wait to have perfect running technique to go out and be an ultra marathoner no throw yourself out in the game yeah absolutely i mean it's uh, i mean yeah, that's across the board jetty too it's like so many people are like oh i'm not ready yet i have this idea like i don't know if it's going to work how would you know mm -hmm. are you going to have a strike of knowledge something it's like this is it no i mean uh who is it marie forleo says it great like uh clarity comes from engagement not thought it's great. I love that. I've had that quote in my mind for, I don't know how many years, but it's like, you don't know until you do mm -hmm. period. If you, if you know it, that's nothing. It's a very small fraction of it to, to know and not to do is not to know mm -hmm. period. In my opinion. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Yeah. Agree with you, man. You get a little heated on that one. <laughs> I could tell. Uh, so ordinarily I asked this question to begin the podcast, but we jumped mm -hmm. right into it. So I'm going to circle back to it now. Um, and that is, what does it mean to be a man? Mm. 
for me right now, and this meaning is always evolving, but like for me to be a man um, means that I have a certain level of responsibility. And that word is multifaceted for me. Responsibility means that I have certain duties personally, uh, whether that's to support my daughter, to support my partner, whatever that is, there's certain duties that I have and responsibilities as a man. But there's also like responsibility, like the ability to respond, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, There's this quote, uh, something to the effect of like, it's better to be um, a, uh, a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And for me as a man, it's like, it is my, my duty and, and my responsibility really to equip myself with whatever it is that I need in life in order to wield the ability to build right? and to acquire the skills that it means to build as a man. I think men are meant to build, like we're meant to create stuff, right? Like women, the creative feminine force. Yes. But men, with, with hands, like to manifest is with my hands, I create like manifest. That is what the actual word means, right? Like with my hands, I create. And I think as men, it's our opportunity to, to build. And we have a responsibility to do that in harmony with our surroundings, right? So to acquire the skills, but also to like, not, you know, kind of rape nature in the way that we do just to say it that way, that's one responsibility that we are way out of integrity with mm-hmm. <laughs> as men globally. Right. But I think it's, it's our responsibility to, to find out what we stand for and to have integrity and to, to really be a strong presence without being forceful. Right. So like for me right now, it is like, what can I, how can I be more me and how can I be more of a a powerful presence and less forceful. Like how can I achieve and create and build what I'm here to do as a man and do that from a place of deliberate intent and not from a place of brute force. Right. It's a beautiful question, man. I think that if there were more men who are find themselves in positions of power and leadership, asking themselves that question, Mm. then the world would look a lot, a lot different than it does currently. Absolutely. I'm glad that you brought in that element of uh, doing it without, uh, like what I heard was a a, a respect and a reverence for all things that are sacred and really holding Mm -hmm. all life to be sacred that I think we can certainly see a lot of evidence over the years where men or the masculine has, has not taken that into consideration. It's been about growth at the cost and expense of others and everything else that is not me. And I see right now with the work that we're all doing all these leaders who are stepping forward, leading men's movements, you being mm-hmm. a part of empowered brotherhood and leading that organization with the other guys who are involved and all these other organizations that are springing up everywhere. I hear a similar call to continue to build, continue to grow, continue to create, but not at, at such a great cost to, mm-hmm. to everyone and everything around us. That's that alone right there. If we just woke up and reminded ourselves of that today, every day, how can I create today without, creating great, a greater cost and consequence to those around me changes things up, mm-hmm. changes things up. Yeah. So, so I really like that, man. Um, anything else to say on that before I take it in a different direction? I mean, the, the one thing that came up, yeah, was just that I think that you referenced or spoke to specifically like empowered brotherhood and other movements that are, are birthing. I think it's, it, it's a must, right? Like we're seeing systems, and worlds really in a way dissolve 
and in the even maybe preliminary ashes, in my opinion, ashes, something else needs to take that place. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I, when I look in the world right now, I was having a, a conversation for another show before this. And on there, we were talking about like <laughs> the guy was in Australia and he was talking about Western and as far as like the education model and like preparing people for life. And I'm, when we look at the systems that are in place right now, it's like, we don't prepare men for shit. Mm. There's nothing in place right now, unless, right. Like they get most men that follow the traditional model are going to under, you know, they're going to grade school, they're going to high school, they're going to college. And then they got a college and they're like, I've got a shitload of debt and I don't even know how to do life. Mm. And I think that a lot of these movements are really supporting men. At least what I've heard from the guys that come into our world is like, wow, I, I wish I would have learned this 10, 15 years ago. And it's fascinating to me that that even comes up. It's like, of course we get to learn this stuff. Why haven't we yet? It doesn't really matter as much as why we, why haven't we, but we are now. And you know, it's just the, the need is high for a place where men can go to really get fed period. Agreed, man. Definitely yeah. agree with you there. And yeah. I like what you said. It's because it is, it's, it's fascinating to me when I think about who, who designed this shit, like who, who put this together and popped this out into the world, expecting that we could overcome challenge and adversity just by figuring it out for ourselves. And why weren't we better prepared but I, I love what you said that, that that's not really what's most important what's most important is it is available now and what we're doing forward and yep. um you know being a father just like you thinking about that next generation man it's it's more than enough to to keep us aiming that way instead of like absolutely past yes it's a must wonderful man well uh i got a few wrap up questions I want to ask you here and then I yep. uh, want to make sure you take some space to tell everybody about you and where they can learn more about you and what you're up to in the world. So a few rapid fire questions. You ready? Yep. All right. So what is one thing you've learned in life you wish you knew when you were 18? Mm. Patience. Patience. 10 days of silent meditation will do that for you. <laughs> <laughs> quick, quick story. Uh, when I did, when I did my first Vipassana, I, I unknowingly had contracted scabies from somebody I was traveling with Whoa. and I didn't start feeling it until day one. And then I spent the next 10 days, like what the fuck is happening to my body? Just like itchy. It, it would like, it was like took Vipassana to a whole nother level for me. I can imagine. <laughs> um, fond memories, but yeah, patience, definitely patience. Yep. Um, all right. What do you think is the most important value to have as a man? Mm. Um, it's something I think that has been not looked down upon, but in a way looked ambition, desire, like the fire period. Sure. I love that. Yeah. And what is one thing the world needs more of from men right now? Responsibility. You know, I think that a, a lot of men, I think a lot of men have given up, honestly. I think a lot of men are kind of like lackluster. Uh, they're going through the motions. They're kind of maybe in the old model. And I, I think that the men waking up to the fact that they have a choice and they just haven't made it yet is what most men need. Awesome, man. And uh, last but not least, how can people follow you, find you, or should they go to check out everything that you got going on? Give us all. Yeah. Awesome. So best place to, to interact, to see what I got going on is on Instagram. Uh, and that's at Jeff Augustinelli, uh, long Italian name. That's A G O S. T-I-N-E-L-L-I. -L -L um, or it's getting redone right now. It's still up, but it's a uh, website's jeffagustinelli.com or jeffa.co. 
Awesome, man. Well, we'll make sure we put that up in the show notes for you. Jeff, awesome to connect with you, man. I'm bummed that I didn't Likewise, get to bro. link up with you this time out in Austin, but next time. Hopefully in the very near future, man. We'll link yep. up, catch a workout. I don't know if I can I don't know if I'm ready for a hundred thousand or hundred hundred K yet, but <laughs> maybe yep. someday. Yeah, maybe. It's not for everybody, my man. <laughs> Wonderful, man. Well, thank you for being on here today, man. Really appreciate everything you're doing in the world and we'll catch up with you further down the road. Awesome. Thanks, Jetty. All right, y'all, make sure you go over to risingman.org, check out the links and resources for this episode and every episode that we have right there on the website, risingman.org. While you're there, make sure you check out Dojo, our four-day self-mastery and embodied leadership training that's coming up April 7th to the 10th. Go ahead and get yourself registered today. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you guys are listening to us and subscribe to our YouTube channel as well, youtube.com slash the Rising Man Movement. Give us a follow on Instagram, also at Rising Man Movement. Give us a shout out, send us a message. Let us know what you think about this episode and all the other episodes we've been dropping lately. Shout out to everybody who's been supporting the Rising Man Movement all of these years. We're about to round the corner into our fourth full year of the podcast. I can't believe it. So grateful for all the support and everything that you guys have done to make this movement really move over the past four years. Thank you in every way for tuning in, listening, and supporting each and every week. Until next time, rise up and claim your destiny. Your destiny.